Good afternoon and welcome to episode two of the Hugh Grundy podcast. I'd like to introduce Mr. Hugh Grundy. Hello there, Simon. Nice to be back and yep. nice to be uh, sitting in your uh, studio and doing this again for and part two. It's great to have you back again. Um, we're Before we go on, we've got a couple of minor, not errors from the first episode, but things that we couldn't remember. Yeah. Um, one was the, the the pirate ship boat that we couldn't remember, and you said Radio London. And, and there was a Radio London. There was. But, of course, the main one was, of course, the, fa- the fantastic Radio Caroline. Yes, and we'll thank Guy Walton for uh, bringing that to our attention, our good old mate from, used to live in Menorca, but Absolutely. back in the UK now. Thank you, Guy. Yes. And the other thing we touched on was the position in the chart, UK charts, okay. of She's Not There. Right. And it did, it got to number 12, and it was September the 9th, 1964, I think. That was sounds his, about right. That it was his highest... I know it was 64. Yeah, and it was his highest uh, peak. Number one was You Really Got Me by The Kinks. In good company. Yeah. Number two, Have I the Night by The Honeycombs. I don't know that. Have I the Right. Oh, is it the yeah, Right? Yeah, have I, I the Right. Do beg your pardon. That, that, that group was the very, very first to have a girl drummer. Oh, really? And she was really very good. Honey Lantry was I've her not name. really heard of the Honey Coast. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, I Won't Forget You by Jim Reeves. Right, I don't think I'll sing that one. I Wouldn't Trade You for the World by The Bachelors. Gosh. <laughs> the Crying Game by Dave Berry. Right. Do A Diddy by Manfred Mann. Right. Do A Diddy Diddy, it says here. Yeah. I'm Into Something Good by Herman's Hermits. There you go. Uh-huh. So you were touring with them, weren't you? Yes, uh, we did, yeah. Uh, Ragdoll by The Four Seasons. As Tears Go By by Marianne Faithful, Right. Which was written by Jagger and Richards. Indeed. And A Hard Day's Night at number 10. Beatles. Yeah. And I think the, the last few, It's For You by Cilla Black. She's Not There, The Zombies. Mm-hmm. Such A Night by Elvis Presley. I Love You Because by Jim Reeves. I don't know any of these other ones. <laughs> um, I Get Around by The Beach Boys. Yes, goodness. The Wedding by Julie Rogers. Do you know that song? Very vaguely, yeah. Yeah, but vaguely. Uh, It's All Over Now, The Rolling Stones. Right. Where Did Our Love Go by The Supremes. Call Up the Groups, The Barren Knights. That's where they they mimicked all the the bands, didn't they? They were fantastic. They were very funny, they were. And number 20, which is a great track, Tobacco Road by the Nashville Teens. By the Nashville Teens, yeah. So there you go. So, So, and I actually looked... It was exactly three months later, December, that you went to number one in 64 with She's Not There in the States. In the States, yeah. So it was only sort of 12 weeks later you were out in America. Would you, would you have already gone to number one and then you went to America? I would have thought so. So it would have been Christmas into New Year that Christmas, you'd have that gone. Christmas into New Year. Yep. So 65, yep. not yeah, yeah. So you were 20. Or yeah. nearly 20. Nearly, yeah. Nearly 20. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. So so after the USA, where was the next big country that you travelled to? I think at the point then, after that, we were starting to do gigs around the UK quite, uh, quite, okay. quite, quite a lot. Obviously, yes. And then at one point, our manager, Mr Tito Burns, we'll get on to him later as well, uh, got us in the office one day and said, lads, he said do you fancy going to the other side of the world, to the Philippines? And we all said, Philippines? Well, 
it's not often you hear that spoken in uh, no in world no, no. affairs. I mean, obviously the world is a much smaller place now, so we all know about the of Philippines. Course, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we thought at that time, well, um, why not really? Yeah. Um, it seemed like a good idea, and he said, well, um, all your uh, airfares will be paid for. Uh, where you stay, that'll be all taken care of. Yeah. And you'll be earning whatever he said that we were going to be earning. Yeah. And was that so? The Philippines, you wouldn't think they'd go into rock and roll, would you? And be in, even listening to that type of music. You wouldn't have thought so, but, no. but the, the proof was when we got there. Yeah. And the, and the, the show that we did, and, and the amount of people that went to it, well, yeah. must have known what they were, uh, what was coming. Didn't you say that you turned up at the airport and thought, looked out the plane window and Absolutely. thought, are the Beatles here or something? We, <laughs> <laughs> Rod is quoted as saying, yeah. um, as we. Uh, we landed and we were making the way to the uh, stand yeah. and uh, we could see all these hundreds of people all across the roof of the building and uh, he probably turned to Colin and said, um, who's this lot for, do you suppose? Is, is, is there a famous politician on board? <laughs> and it wasn't until a little bit later when we actually stepped out onto the uh, uh, the stairs that uh, and they all went mad and we thought, golly, it's for us. It's for you. <laughs> it was yeah. quite a shock. Amazing though that yeah. they were in so yeah, and so this is still only you doing the venues, or was there other bands? No, I think there was other artists on that particular show. Okay, which took place at the Araneta Stadium, which was um, a, a huge uh, a venue. Yeah, almost as big as the Houston Astrodome, which we'd played that time before. Okay, yeah, so big, um, big place, big place. Can't remember the the actual seating, but it was a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Well, almost like a football stadium size, or not quite as big as that, but big. Big, right? Big, probably not quite as big as like Wembley, for example, or okay. something like, like that. Like Wembley Arena, maybe that yeah. sort of size. Yeah, that, that's that's probably a good comparison. Okay, um, and so is this a case of like you you had a number one there or anything like that, or it was a? I think we were in the charts. I honestly can't remember if that's the case, but we must have done. Otherwise, probably we wouldn't have been there, or they wouldn't have known about us. Actually. Um, Talking of that, I did look at the chart positions for the rest of the world, mm -hmm. and she's not there, um, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, we've forgotten about the fact that Santana covered it. Yes. And made it a big hit again, didn't Again, he? yes, But um, I'm sure I read somewhere, I'm just trying to look where I, where I read it, that it was... Um, Went to number one in a few, quite a few other countries. Yes, it did. In in Japan, it went to number one. Mm, don't know why we never went there. To yeah, this day, Japan, I don't know why. 1964, Canada top ten. Mm -hmm. It went to number two in Canada. Wow. Japan number one. New Zealand number one as Indeed. well. Um, U.S. Billboard number two and the U U.S. Cash Box top 100 number one. Number one. So I mean, yeah, why not a Japan tour? I wonder why. Just yeah. the logistics didn't. It Maybe, I don't know. If, if they could get us to the Philippines, I'm sure they could have got us to Japan. Was the Philippines, a, how long a flight was that back then? It was a long time and uh, aircraft then couldn't fly direct. No. So there would be stopovers. I mean, when we flew to the Philippines, I think we uh, touched down in Germany, maybe Frankfurt, something like that. Okay. And then flew on to, um, I don't know, uh, Singapore, would, something like that. Would you have been doing gigs on the journey no like you were no no no. Okay. no it was just a stopover I think um, we could get off the aircraft and stretch your legs and yeah. go inside have a fag have a, fag. Have a, cigarette, <laughs> have a for, cigarette for all the people who don't know what that means yeah that's true <laughs> yeah quite <laughs> yes and um, and it was a long time it took a yeah. long time 
I must, it I must already say it took a long time. So, so was this um, the Philippines trip? Was it in front of the royal family? The no, Philipp- no, they didn't. Like they didn't come to see us at the at the, at the gig, but the uh, well, say the royal family, the um, the, uh, the president, the of president the, of, of the okay. Philippines, um, and his wife, Mrs. Melda Marcos, the Marcos family, and their daughters, um, uh, who were quite taken by us, I have to say. Yeah, um, we were invited. Uh, as was every visiting uh, group, artists, to go to the uh, palace, probably the palace, um, for reception. Okay. And uh, we'd only just recently found out that the Beatles had uh, turned it down. They said, no, we we can't be bothered. It was quite well documented, wasn't it? It was quite well documented. They did. And they used that word, to snub them. Mm. And, of course, the Philippine people took that to heart. Yeah. And at that point, from then on, the Beatles were like nobody. Yeah, I'm sure I read somewhere or watched one of their documentaries where they were almost feared for their lives to get out of the country because they'd upset so many people. Yes, and when they invited us to the uh, the palace, we went without any any further ado. Yes, I'm sure and, you did. And uh, very pleasant it was, I seem to remember. Fabulous. But, of course, escorted there by uh, uh, military men with guns, machine guns and one wow. thing and another, which went... When you're a little English lad who's never seen anything like that. Yeah. Quite frightening, actually, I've got to be honest. Yeah, I mean, what, two, three years after coming out of school? Yes. And you're on a... Yeah, I mean, I know. It's, it's And then, and then uh, there, there was a bit of trouble after, after that we'd finished those shows. Right. And I think there was talk of doing some more shows somewhere else and one thing or another. And um, they said, that, well, we can't afford you, so there are no, no more shows. Right. Okay. And we went, why is that then? And they said, well, you too much money. We said, well, how much were you paying for us? And they gave us figures and one thing and another, and we realised we were seeing absolutely nothing of that. Mm. So that old story again. It's of... the old, same old story, yeah. and we were not alone. Practically everybody, everybody at that time, and probably if they're not too careful, even nowadays. Very much so. It's yeah, One for off. you, 19 for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so at this stage, so... You've come back from the Philippines mm-hmm. with a successful sort of tour of it. Were you there for long? Yeah, I think we were. I think we were there for a good month or so. Oh, really? As long and, as that? Uh, yeah, and we had to hand our passports in, I, I recall. And then this bit of bother uh, came along and we knew we had to get out of the country. So we arranged to meet the people who got the passports and we snatched them off them and, really? uh, and made a dash for the airport. And we just about got out. Insane times. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. 60s. The That's 60s. They were crazy, yeah. man. They were yeah. crazy. So so you've come back to the UK. Mm-hmm. I know you said at this stage, you, you, with with the the chart action you'd had and the, the records that were out, yep. you were playing some pretty good venues in the UK at that stage. Absolutely. I think um, some of the main, the main venues that we played were the universities up and down the country. Okay. Um, they were they had seemingly had the money to put on shows and one thing or another. So it was us... Uh, a show would be us and people like The Who okay. and uh, as you already mentioned perhaps people like Herman's Hermits and uh, Nashville okay. Teens people like that The Kinks yeah so uh, yeah good days they were so while we're on The Who is there, there's, a, there's a couple of good sto- Keith Moon stories there there's isn't a there particularly well w- there would be when it's Keith Moon now wouldn't there <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> we all know we love dear old Keith Bless Moon, Moon the Loon Moon the Loon that was his nickname yeah but we were doing a show with him at one of the universities Okay. And um, one large room, I think, was our dressing room. 
um, call it dressing room. I think we went on stage in what we turned up in, so I don't think there was much right, okay, dressing yeah, going on. Yes, I can imagine. But uh, Chris, bless his heart, was getting ready to go on stage, <clears throat> and he took out of his case a starting pistol. Okay. That he, for some unknown reason, and I'm, one of these days I'll ask him, why did you go on stage with a starting pistol? So he uh, used to fire it? He did. What, to start the show? Something like that. Wow. I don't know. I really Did don't know. Did people think that there was someone with a gun? Yes. <laughs> I mean, today, you'd be scared. You'd, be, yeah, you'd you run for your life, wouldn't you? You wouldn't even get it in the venue. I no, you wouldn't. Would you? No, you wouldn't be. So he'd fire this pistol? He'd fired this pistol off. Okay. He was just testing it in the dressing room, make sure it was loaded and working. <laughs> with a blank? With a blank, of yeah. Course. Well, it had to be a blank. Of starting course. pistol type yes. thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. And Keith came over, Keith Moon came over and said, uh, what you got there? What's that? What's that? He said, well, starting pistol that I take on stage with me. And he said, uh, oh, he said, I've got something like that. Yeah. He went away, come back with this gun. Okay. And he said, yeah, oh, look, 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 I've got something very similar. Right. But, of course, what we, what we hadn't become aware of was the fact that everybody else in the room had quietly shoveled out the room. Well, so Pete Townsend and, and Roger yeah, Daughtry yeah, and... Yeah, yeah, all the rest of John them. John Whistle. Everybody else had yeah. all disappeared out the room. I, th- I thought that's a bit funny. Anyway, you fired it. Uh, yeah. And we were just about to go on stage... And he made a run for it too. Okay. And we're all th- s- standing there ready to go on stage and we're thinking, well, so he's got a gun. And then we realised what it was. Okay. It was a tear gas gun. And yeah. then, of course, the tear gas came down from the ceiling and we couldn't see, we just couldn't see. We are absolutely crying our eyes out. I mean, yeah. cry from tear gas, not yeah. from... Yeah, yeah, And there we had to go on stage, mop- <laughs> mopping our... Oh, it was, oh, so it was within minutes of actually within walking minutes onto the stage. of going on stage. Yeah, yeah. So he was—he uh, obviously planned that, didn't he? <laughs> he, he? He sure did. I mean, obviously it was like a, a, a quick spur of the moment thing. Okay. But of course, him and his character and his um, uh, yeah, you know, he was renowned for his book is hilarious. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, but but tragic at the same time. Well, how how often was that case? Yeah, exactly. Sadly. Wasn't there another story I know you've said where he was on? Was that on a plane? It wasn't a plane. I don't think we were on that particular plane with them. But the story goes that um, <coughs> he'd he'd uh, taken on board uh, a can of vegetable soup, Heinz vegetable soup. It's very nice, actually, that is. Yeah. And um, so he sat there, planes taken off and they're flying along, and he started, he started groaning. Okay. He, meanwhile, he'd emptied this um, can of soup into the sick bag. And uh, quietly, and he started moaning as, as one might if you were feeling really air sick. Yes. And uh, he was making noises like being sick and one thing and another. He was holding <laughs> the bag over his face and one thing and another. And people were obviously looking, going, "Oh, poor lad! Oh dear, he, yeah. he's not, not very good at flying and one thing and another." Okay. But uh, he stopped moaning and he started laughing. And he tipped the sick bag up and started drinking whatever was inside it. And it was vegetable soup. Of course, people were going, oh, no. <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. Crazy man. Never mind about driving his Rolls Royce into the swimming pool. Well, yeah. Which is, of course, I mean, well, well yeah. documented. Well, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're touring, you're doing the universities with lots of other bands. Yes. So, so where's the timeline now between the, the Odyssey and Oracle album? The timeline then would be that um, the gigs themselves, because we didn't, we were making records yeah. and we were putting them out, yeah. and none of them were making any inroads into the charts at all. Okay. Um, in the same way that we had hoped, that, you know, trying to do copies of "She's Not There," which really didn't work. Um, so the and then, of course, 
by natural, the, the type of gigs started getting uh, less and less and less, yeah. more infrequent and of less quality, okay. one thing or another. And um, so we all talked about this and we said, well, maybe it could be time for to, to, for this all to come to an end. Right. Maybe we should leave it at a, at a point rather than let it drift away into absolute and nothing. dwindle into nothing. And, and at the end of the day, at that period... What, what was the lifespan of a rock and roll band? Two or three years? Most yes. bands didn't think yep. they would go much further, did no, they? they didn't think... We certainly didn't think that either. No. I think we had five years or so, and I think that was quite a good, uh, quite a good score, actually. OK. But, but, of course, during the course of those discussions, it was agreed that we knew we had another album in us. OK. And at that time, Decca had dropped us, so we, you know, we didn't go to them. Um, and we went to uh, CBS... Yes. And uh, said, we'd like to make an album uh, for which we'll pay ourselves, uh, but we need a, a deal and we need uh, studio time. Yeah. And they said, well, you can have studio time and you can be like the first per- first group to go into Abbey Road Studios, which was EMI Abbey Road Studios. And okay. no, uh, mostly EMI artists would be recording there. So we were honoured to be... So uh, they almost went freelance... And yeah, started and hiring it out to absolutely, other and then of okay. course more and more other people started going in and classical performers and so on. And so, so you forth. were possibly were the first. I think we were. I think we were. Okay, we were given a sum of money, not a lot of money, um, and we then thought, well, let's do the best we can. Yeah, let's. And obviously, there was going to be time limits on the amount of recording time that was free to us. Yes, um, and of course, there was always the uh, the unions and the um, and the time allowance you had in a studio any one time and the, the you know the uh, what's it called the union student well this is what Musicians we talked union. about just at the end of the of the first episode absolutely so there were literally people who would come in and say stop what you're doing well we would we were the, the story is we were all well i wasn't but they they were singing round a piano yeah in studio two finishing off a, a track and we were looking at the clock and it was getting closer and closer to finish time. And so with the fi- final few notes that they were singing, the door opened and uh, two or three guys in um, coats, yeah. uh, lab coats, came in and took the piano away. And we were actually still singing. <laughs> following it goes, out the door. Following it out the door. And if, you, <laughs> if I'm told that if you listen carefully enough and have got good equipment, really? you, you can actually detect it, yeah. I mean, I, um, I, for for people who don't know, there's a, a very famous comedy duo from the 60s called Morecambe and Wise. Indeed. And when you say the brown coats, that's all I think of. With yes. the, with yeah. the um, I forget the lady's name, the uh, the singer with the hobnail boots. Shirley, Shirley Bassey. Bassey. That was Shirley Bassey with and the hobnail boots. Well, and they were literally like that, were they? they Absolutely. Were brown coats. Brown coats. Smoking right. a pipe. Yep, smoking pipes, coming in saying, right, time's up, come along now. And that was because they all worked for the BBC. Or is it not because of that? Was, no, I was think, it? No, I think it was musicians' union rules. Oh, okay. It was and to do with the it. musicians' unions. Yes, absolutely. So what they were paid, they were paid for a, a day's yeah. work, and that that day's work was so many hours. Right. And when those hours were up, thank you very much. Good night. We're uh, we're going home. Studios closed. Okay. So you, how would you arrive at um, Abbey Road? Were you getting collected, or did you make your own way there? Made our own way there. So where were you living at this stage? At that stage, I was living at home with my mum and dad Okay. in Hatfield. Yeah. And by then, I'd happily um, graduated to an MGB sports car, Okay. which was... Uh, yeah, I loved that. Actually, 
what did you have before that then? What I had before that was a Lambretta scooter. Okay. And it's worth recalling yes. that uh, in the uh, our first po- podcast that we did, and we never quite got to it, but um, uh, as I rec- remember saying, that we made some recordings at Decker Studios. Yes. Or rather, we used to go rehearsing. Okay. And the only way that uh, I could get there was either take the drums on the bus okay. or... And at that time, I then graduated to a Lambretta scooter. Yeah. And I could get the drums on the back of the Lambretta scooter. On the back of a scooter? On the back of a scooter. And also, you won't believe this, but Colin was on the scooter as well <laughs> and his guitar. So two, two adults, two a adults, drum kit and drum a guitar. Kit and a guitar. On a Lambretta. On a, yeah, absolutely. I that's, don't know how it stood it. I that's really a sight to behold. There's no photos of that. Sadly, there isn't. And I wish there had been. Because, oh, wouldn't uh, it have been... I mean, health and safety would have... I mean, if we'd got stopped, or nowadays, okay. the police and what, senior got well, stopped. What would that have been? A Lamb- LI-125? LI-150, I think. LI-150. Yeah, I think it was classic. 150. Yeah, two-tone? Did it have the two-tone? It tone? was the red and the grey, absolutely, yeah. Lovely. Worth an absolute fortune now. If, I, if I'd still had it, yes, I wish. Okay, so you so you were getting the train to Abbey Road? No, or you I drove used to, no, I used to drive up there. MGB, Those were the days when um, parking was he- heck of a lot easier in London. You could park, park pretty much anywhere. Okay. And uh, so I'd park around some side street near the back of uh, uh, Abbey Road there and, and walk in. So were you were aware at this, because it was really at the same time as the Beatles were there. And I know you said you, you just never really crossed paths with them as, as people, but you obviously used a lot of their equipment and the stuff that they were using. Well, you were is studio to the room that they were in. It was okay. So and we were there too, and they just finished um, Sergeant Pepper. Sergeant Pepper, okay. exactly. And they'd left quite a few bits and pieces of instruments there, some light percussion bits and pieces. Okay. And this particular keyboard, which was called a um, Mellotron. A Mellotron. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, it was quite a, an advanced piece of equipment at the time. Okay. And it worked. By uh, inside it was a whole load of tapes, continuous That's loop right. tapes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which when you press the key, that tape would um, would play, and on that particular tape was the particular note that you pressed on the keyboard. Right. So this is the Strawberry Fields intro. Is that? It's exactly it's, that. It's exactly sound. that. Exactly that. But it was that machine as well. And it was that machine. John okay, Lennon had amazing. left it there. Rod, one, you know, we hadn't been there terribly long, and he saw it and thought, "What's that? I'll." Let me switch that on and see what happens. And of course, he fell in love with the sound that it made. Of course, yeah. And uh, so, as iconic. you can hear, it's on quite a few tracks. So, what, what, where was a lot of the music already written? It was. And you and, rehearsed it? And well rehearsed. We used to rehearse at the uh, Village Hall in Wheatamstead. Yeah. And then retire at the pub just down the road when we'd finished. And uh, everything was as rehearsed as best it could be. Knowing that, especially as you were paying for it yourself, you knew you had to go in there. You and had to go in. Get the tracks down, okay, and um, and and get on. Abbey Road was still four track as well, wasn't it? Or was had it gone to eight? By I then? think at the beginning it was four track, okay. But of course the Beatles were very in- instrumental in uh, innovating it or trying to work out how to record with four tracks. Yeah, and I think then after a short period of time they managed to get eight tracks going, and I don't know how that would have been because before that. It, you to get more, you would have to bounce tracks one, two, and three to four. That's you'd what do we a did. mix down, yeah. So we do bass drums and uh, perhaps the guitar or or, or a bit of keyboard, yeah, for, for so that you knew where you were. And those would be mixed 
down onto one track. Yeah. And then that left the three to put vocals and stuff on it. Is that ping-ponging they called it, didn't they? they called it ping-pong. You're quite right. So, of course, once it was down on that number one track, that Mm. was it. You couldn't go back. And you had to hit record. You deleted what the first three tracks had on them. Yeah, so that was it. And you couldn't then mix them again at a later stage. You couldn't think, oh, drums need louder or quieter or bass needs. It was there forever like that. And a bit of, what's the correct word, degradation? Is that the right word? Or or the the sound quality would have been a little bit less. It would have been a little bit less. The more times you bounced onto one track, the the, the slightly poorer the quality of the sound. If there was a bit of hiss on a track, it was then doubled almost, wasn't it? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, so you did that with the first lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So she's not there. Would that have had bounce down to track five, or would have that been? She's not there. We'd done we'd done originally earlier, a lot earlier. Okay, not, not in the uh, Odyssey and Oracle session. No, I realise that. No, but what I'm saying is, is, is would that have been yes, just down to four tracks, or would you have been ping ponging at that stage? I think we would have been ping ponging then. Yes, indeed. And I mean, so Abbey Road, for an example, how many how many mics would be around your kit? I, rem- I remember being in the same uh, little place that Ringo had, uh, had uh, recorded. Yeah, there's some great photos, actually, of yes. in your book that you... Indeed, and that's that's the kit. That's my Ludwig kit. Yeah. I took the head off the bass drum, and uh, they mic'd it up. I, I don't know, I can't remember. I think there are photos of it. Yes, there are. So there's probably one that shares the hi-hat and the snare, probably, yep. isn't there? More than Would likely. there have been an overhead? There would have been an overhead, there would have been one on the bass drum. And, uh, yeah, that's probably... So what would they have... I mean, I might be a bit naive here, but are they... So would they have mixed... Would you have had a mixer, a drum mixer, if you like, that had four mics into it, and then there would be one out to the mixer, so you were only on one track? I would have thought that would have been exactly the case. Okay, so then there would have been a track for guitar, Mm -hmm. a track for bass, Mm -hmm. a track for keyboards... So vocals would have had to have been overdubbed, wouldn't they? Not all. Well, once once those those th- items were put down on number one track, that left the three free again. Okay. And that's when the vocals started and any other overdubs. And so would you have performed them live with Colin singing? No, I think we just did the, the backing, like the bass, bass guitar, drums. Yeah, and the rhythm the keyboard, tracks. the rhythm tracks, should yeah. we say. And perhaps guitar. Okay. And so, but we'd rehearse so well... We knew exactly where we were in the song. Okay, so you didn't have... There was no leakage later on where you could see... Or hear... Not see. You could hear Colin singing no. the, the, the first generation no. tracks or anything like that. Well, no. that probably makes up for why it sounds so fantastic because there are lots of bands that you can hear the leakage from earlier takes. Mm. I know a lot of Led Zeppelin stuff you can hear Robert Plant's vocals before he put the vocals before on put, because... Yeah. They would yeah. cut it live with him singing. Would you, be, would you have been barricaded off then? So you'd have had the... Would they have muffled the drums into a corner? Or I, I was in a sort of soundproofed piece, like like two soundboards either side. Okay. But I was open at the front to the studio. Right. So I could see everybody because we were all playing together. Right. Uh, so Rod would be at the keyboards. I'd be playing live. Chris would be playing live. And Paul would be playing live which is how it should be. Well, of course. Indeed, if you ask those lovely guys now, Chris, Paul, sorry, um, Rod and Colin, yeah. and that's exactly how they've recorded their recent albums because yeah. they wanted it to sound uh, in, in well, that same get, way. I always feel like with that, you get um, 
group time, don't you? Because everybody's playing just their own version of time, mm-hmm. and therefore you you create one sound. Whereas when you overdub, you're not really getting that. No, you've it's, got to it's, cut it live. It's live. I mean, in the very best sense of the word, live. Yeah, and of course the feel. Yeah, and well, that's and indeed, how, uh, if there was a, a any sign of like speeding up or slowing down, well, that that got that was it. That that went down. That's how it was. Exactly. You didn't play to a click track. No. And can you remember the first song you recorded, or would it have just been go in, record them all, and then decide the order after? Did that's you? that's very much the case. I mean, I can't remember how the order that we recorded them in. I've got to be honest. And so, who, who came up with the name Odyssey and Oracle? What? Where did that come from? That came from a. A dear young chap called Terry Quirk, yeah. who was friends with Chris, and he uh, was in the same uh, flat that they used to share in uh, Finchley in London. Yeah, and um, he was—he is an artist, or was an artist, and uh, he was given the job. See what you can come up with. See what sort of ideas you can come up with. Okay. And he would be doodling at his at wherever he, um, you know, wherever he was, and he came up with the idea of Odyssey and Oracle, and then we saw it. And uh, we said, what it needs is some like some psychedelic-y type pictures and some pictures of people and, uh, you know, uh, artwork, shall we say. Yeah. And he did. He came up with it. And But by then, I think we'd done the album. He'd finished the artwork. We'd gone off on tour. And uh, we what we didn't realise was that he'd um, accidentally spelt Odyssey wrong. He'd spelt it with an E instead of a Y. Right. And okay. uh, because we'd gone, he couldn't get it checked, so it was passed, and that's how it came out. And is that... Um, I, I, I did know some of that, and I know didn't you... Or Rod, I think, I read somewhere, played it off that it was intentional. Yes, he did. But it wasn't. It, it was an actual... It was a but it already already gone to print, had it? It gone, it gone, and it was going out, yeah. A very psychedelic cover. Mm. Sleeve. It is. I love it. I think it's. And I do have a copy mm-hmm. that you gave me for my 40th birthday. I did, didn't I? And uh, it's still, without a doubt, I still feel, I know it's Paul Weller's favourite album, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, very iconic. The track listing, the, the order, whoever came up with that order, it's just perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the same listening to it on a CD because there's side one and two on a record and. The feeling of turning it over. Turning it over, listen to the other side. I I, I beg your pardon, I can't remember what track two is on the first track. It'll come to me in a second. Mm -hmm. But um, Beechwood Park is the... No, what's the first song? Side one. Side one, track one, Care of Self 44. Care of Self 44, yes. Which we used to cover, didn't we? Yes, we did. With our dear friend Jason on keyboards. Yep, we did. And Yvonne singing. Yep. Um, I thought you did... We did a pretty good job. We too, did I actually. A, there is a version of it somewhere on Facebook or one of those. There is. I know. I remember Jason talking at great length about having a certain amount of trouble finding the the exact right chords, and he listened to it and played it and listened to it and played it again and again and again until yeah, because there's nothing online it. for it. I don't think. I think no. there's one guy. There is a chap on YouTube who breaks it right down, mm-hmm. but it's an incredible piece of piano playing. It is. It really is. Yeah. So. What was the recording period to get that all down? What, what a week, ten days, two weeks? I can't think it was any more than that. There okay. would be that would be then the recording, and then probably the second week or so they would be spending 
mixing as, right. as best they could with the tracks. Um, wasn't it? Was it the same? Um, would it been the same people the Beatles were using the they tape were. operators and it stuff? It was uh, Jeff Emmerich was the was the right. uh, okay. engineer, wow. famous yeah. famous engineer. Yeah, sadly not with us now, but uh, yeah, he was engineer on pretty much most of it. Okay, and um, when did it when did it get released? Um, fairly shortly after that, I think CBS then listened to it, and uh, I don't think they thought it was good enough to be released. And at the time... Which is crazy, isn't it? it isn't it just, isn't it just, that um, a good gentleman called Al Cooper... Yes. A well-known uh, figure in the music industry. Blood, blood Sweat and Tears. And I think he was, yes. You're quite I know right. he, he famously played the keyboard on um, Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. Okay, well. that's an interesting fact. Yes. But he came to England one day on a, um, you know, a record-buying spree and he found this in amongst many of the records he took back and he went to um, Clive Davis at CBS in America at the time yep. and said, uh, I bought this out, I've got this album, I think you should you should release it. Don't matter how much you pay for it, and it's, it's, it's just well worth it. And Clive Davis said, well, we actually got that anyway, but okay. we passed on it. He said, well, may I suggest that you put it out because uh, it, it, it's it's so different and exactly so um and i've actually got a bit of info here it says it was released on date records mm-hmm. in the usa yeah probably a subsidiary of uh, of of cbs, CBS. Mm-hmm. um and it's it achieved critical praise and a cult following which mm. it did didn't it because it built i mean so at this stage how long after recording that did you dissolve the band Pretty much at the end of uh, recording it, we realised that there was probably going to be no future. The album wasn't going to come out. And uh, we thought, well, best we all start moving on to different things. Were you heartbroken? Um, or yes. were you done with it by yeah. then? I no, mean... I wasn't done. I thought, and I've, I've said it before, I've said uh, that uh, I think we could possibly have weathered the storm, as it were. I and, think so. Uh, and we yeah. could have come back. And But, of course... The story never worked like that. And when you no. look, at, look at how it really did turn out, perhaps it was for the best the way it did. Exactly. But, of course, Rod then went on to form his own band, Argent, yeah. uh, with his cousin Jim Rodford, who, and who we've big, spoken big, of before. big, big hits. Yeah, big hits, Hold Your Head Up. Yeah. And Which God was, gave was that a Chris White track? Yes, it was. So he, co- he co-wrote it or wrote it? Uh, he wrote it. Okay. Uh, and he was involved in the recording of it and uh, the producing of it and the mixing of it uh, and who, everything. Who wrote God Gave Rock and Roll to you? Uh, was that the singer from Argent? Oh, that might have been. It might have been Russ Ballard. Russ Ballard. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. We'll have to, oh, no. that'll, be, that'll be corrected in the next episode. Next episode's check. So, so within the period of Knocking Odyssey and Oracle, it's been recorded... You've dissolved the zombies as we know it at yep, the time. Absolutely. We all went our separate ways, pretty much. Did you stay around in the music business or did you...? No, for a little while I went um, went off off track a wee bit and did various jobs. Felt oh, a bit disillusioned by Disillusioned, yeah, disillusioned, yeah. sad, depressed, etc. Um, yeah. Realised I needed to earn money anyway. Yeah. Um, so I took various jobs. I became a car salesman at one point and one thing right, or another. okay. Um, didn't Colin go off? He became an insurance clerk. Yes, or he went. Like that, he went he? and worked in an insurance office. So mm. really, Rod was the only one that stayed in the music business. Or yes, did... indeed, and Chris and Chris yes. was into production. Yes. Okay, and yep. Paul Paul Atkinson moved to the states, didn't he? And didn't he become a, a record executive? He did. He did, and 
he went to the states and um, his is a you know terrific story anyway. Yeah, I mean he's, he was the artist he found and signed to uh, RCA. He was with RCA for some time. Okay, um, we'll get to that. At yes, maybe another time. So so you've now so you're a car salesman. Colin's yep. gone off and he's now an insurance clerk. Yep. Um, he then changed his name, didn't he, and come back? He did. He was tempted by a guy called Mike Hurst. Yeah. To to make some make some records, and uh, in their infinite wisdom, they decided to change his name to Neil MacArthur, and he made three records under that name. Okay. Uh, one of which was a remake of "She's Not There," which he was a bit uh, diffident about doing. I have to say. Yeah, strange but choice, I suppose. But a strange choice, it, but it was in fact a hit. Was it really? Yeah, yeah, it was a hit. I don't think I've ever heard that version. No. So who would it have just been session guys that just yes. played on it? Yeah, session guys. I that. wonder who they were. We'll have to look at look wonder. into that. Okay, so you've um, Rod has formed Argent with Jim Rodford. Yes, indeed. On bass. Russ Ballard. Russ Ballard. And a great drummer. I forget the drummer's name. The guy was Bob Henrik. A fantastic drummer. Who, uh, indeed, great, great drummer. He started his career with Unit 4 Plus 2. Oh, did he? Yeah. I did not know that. Yes, he did. And uh, I would see him many, many times in recent, I say recent years, when I was still in England. Uh, He lived around the um, Chessant and that area. Funny enough, that's where Cliff Richard came from. Um... And he, he would do gigs all over the in that area, and Tracy and myself would go and see him play many, many places. Wow. Always loved him. Always a big good friend, a good friend. I was just um, reading here that uh, the date records released Butcher's Tale in the States. They chose to put that out. As because a of an anti-war thing? Yes, of it was all the Vietnam situation and uh, one thing or another. Um, I don't think it did anything, though. Right. Until it was finally decided to release uh, Time of the Season... And, of course, that um, didn't exactly set the world on fire at that time. No. Except for a DJ in a place called Boise, Idaho, who started playing it on his radio show. Wow. And I knew you're not uh, going to forget the name of that. If you've, I mean, you've, I've heard you mention that before. Yeah, I've forgotten it now, though. <laughs> yeah. What, where was it? Boise. Boise, Idaho. 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 Okay, right. So it was a, it was a disc jockey that yep. played the yep. song. I'll get the name, maybe. Now, that's another recap for next time. Okay. Um, I've just looked here that so this was at the point as well I suppose where when, when did the fake zombies thing happen then? That happened after the uh, record after time of the season started making waves and yeah. it spread from uh, Boise and I other think it's, I, I've, I've got here that unscrupulous promoters in 1969 so mm. it would have been what mm. a year or so later yep. and thought hang on hang we on. need to there's no zo- there's no original zombies. And of course, the music business loves loves a a, a, um, a vacuum, yes. and they'll fill it at any given opportunity. Of course, and uh, and so of course, various people uh, became fake zombies. I suppose because there was no um, social media and stuff like that, no one knew what any of you looked like unless nope. you were probably no nope. the first time around in the US or in London or wherever you were playing. That's right. So they thought they'd get away with they it. They thought they'd get away with it, and indeed to the point where. The bass player changed his name to Hugh Grundy. The bass player? Yeah, did. the bass player. Not the drummer, <laughs> the, the bass player. And um, there was a couple of other guys in it called uh, from uh, who later became ZZ Top. That's right, wasn't it? Dusty well Hill and Frank, well Frank Beard yes. were one of the many versions of the fake zombies. Yes, they were. They, were, they wasn't just the one, yep. That's insane, isn't it? And that's why we then decided at a later stage to uh, make another album. Uh, Rod was not 
particularly interested. He was still, um, I think he'd maybe finished Argent by then, yeah. but he'd retired, as it were, from uh, live playing yeah. and was busy in studios and so on. Um, <clears throat> he said, uh, you know, you want to go and record an album? You do so. And so Chris, Colin, myself, and um, a few other people, a, yeah. a chap named John Verity, whose name we'll talk about as, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, fantastic guitar player. Great, great guitar great player. Singer. Great singer. and a great friend. And a um, great friend of the, of the whole band and the whole situation. Yeah, and yeah. He, and he, he at one time, became singer for uh, Argent. Okay. When Russ Ballard decided to uh, call it a day. And so John Verity was lead singer. For that album? For that, yeah. Not for the... Not, not, not for, the, for Ar- the... For a later Argent album. Okay. Which one right. I can't remember. Okay, well then, so I know the next stage is is probably when you went into um, A&R stuff, wasn't it? Yes. Um, so that's probably a good place to stop. I think it probably could be. Episode two. Episode two, thank you very much. Episode three, we'll, we'll touch on all of that stuff. We will. We'll talk about uh, an album called New World we made. Yeah. And uh, various other. Was things. that the one you were just talking about was, without without yeah. Rod? Yeah, we'll yeah. we'll get into that and the reunion gigs and all the Odyssey and Oracle. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, we've only just scratched the surface. A lot you. to come. A lot to come. Thanks again for your time and and your stories. My pleasure. We'll speak soon. Cheers. Absolutely. Cheers. Thanks. <laughs>